keep peace. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Wag the Dog, a podcast about communications, social media, PR and anything in between really. So this week we go scientific. We'll discuss antimatter, the Higgs boson particle, dark matter, but also venture into the world of cell-to-cell variability, computational biochemistry and supercomputing. Ooh. Uh, no, this is not become your weekly scientific podcast, but we'll discuss the challenge of communicating such complex topics, like the ones I just mentioned, with two guests. James Gillis began his career at CERN as a research uh, physicist. And by the way, that's the Conseil Européen pour la Recherche Nucléaire or European Council for Nuclear Research for you. Uh, he joined the lab communications team in 95, and he has been head of communications there since 2003. We also welcome Chris uh, Shaka, the European Communications Manager for IBM Research. He joined IBM in 2001, has been working in New York, uh, Czech Republic, Austria, and is now based in Switzerland. So both of them kindly accepted to be interviewed for this week's Wag the Dog episode. And what follows is a long chat about storytelling, stakeholder outreach, and passion for science. Enjoy. Both of you, welcome to another episode of Wag the Dog. And we're going to talk about what I think must not be an easy job in communications, and that's communicating and talking about very complex scientific stuff. Uh, James, you work at CERN. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that is very fundamental research. And, and Chris, you work at IBM in research, which is maybe a bit more commercial stuff, but still, you know, very complex topics. So... Both of you, how do you do that? How do you, what are your biggest challenges as professional communicators? Because, you know, explaining something like a consumer product or food-related stuff or even cars and what have you, that is simple, I think. On the other hand, the very complex topics that you cover, uh, that must be a real challenge, no? Who do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, James. Should I start? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's it is a challenge. It really is a challenge, and um, but it's not the challenge that I thought it was going to be. You know, we we did a bit of market research way back uh, before the Large Hadron Collider started up to to figure out what people know about science and what they understand about science, what they think about science, and um, my prejudice was going to be that communicating the value of basic research, blue sky research was going to be a real challenge. But what we found was actually people say, yeah, of course we should understand what's inside the atom. Of course we should understand how the universe ticks. Um, that's what they said. And then the second thing they said, oh, but then there's that place in Geneva and doesn't that cost a lot of money? So what comes out of it tangibly for me now? I mean, that's just paraphrasing a bit of research we did, but, but what surprised me is that people fundamentally get the need for basic research. The more I do this, the more uh, convinced I am. But at the same time, They don't understand it. They don't know what's inside an atom. They don't know how the universe ticks. They haven't got a clue what a Higgs boson is. But if you look at CERN's you know, reputation, we are out there as a center of excellence. People love us. They know the Higgs boson is a good thing. They haven't got a clue what it does or why it's relevant to them still. And that's the real challenge for us. But actually selling the idea that basic research deserves to be done is not the challenge that I thought it was going to be. Now, James, so that means that the general public because when you say people i i assume it's the general public you you know you're an official organization uh european organization so i'm i'm talking you know when you say the public that's european citizens so to say yeah. or, or in an even more international so they do get that fundamental research as you call we call that blue blue sky research so fundamental stuff um is needed but 
that you you understand that there is a need to really make it practical in the way like what does this mean for me today or in the next five years while at the same time we know that those kind of research projects are you know very lengthy processes yeah exactly so the kind of the kind of storylines that we try to develop are that you know we we human beings we're all we're all curious we all want to know how things tick but the people who tend to come and work at places like CERN are just a little bit more curious than most of us and they're usually very smart um they don't understand the word impossible so if they need a piece of kit to do their research piece of technology and it doesn't exist, they'll go out and make it. And then we try increasingly hard these days to make sure that any technologies that are developed here for basic research find their way across to places where they can be applied for immediate practical benefit. So those, those are the kind of things that we've got in the back of our mind when we're developing our storylines. Yeah. Chris, on, on your end with, the, with IBM, now I know the organization a bit, but... Uh, I, I would understand or I would think that, let's say, people who read and are a bit interested in, in technology advancement would understand what, or at least have a, a first concept of su- supercomputing, for instance, or, you know, the impact of big data. But when we're talking about, you know, computational engineering, uh, parallel computing, uh, computational biochemistry, I mean, again, I think, do you have the same challenge as CERN here? Yeah, we certainly have the challenge of, uh, of one, the public, the general public clearly is an audience that we have to reach. But IBM also has shareholders. We have uh, governments, we have clients, we have uh, professors, we have our future recruits, uh, particularly young women. And, uh, and we're 100 and over 100 years old, and people still associate IBM with being a PC company. And yet here in the Zurich Lab, we have two Nobel Prizes for very fundamental research at the nanoscale. And then we do still do a lot of research in the hardware side of things. So we like to say that we span everything from atoms to analytics here at the, uh, in IBM Research. And that comes with its own problems because you need to be able to encapsulate this storyline to help people understand why are we looking at things at the nanoscale and how does that translate to making my uh, my supercomputer more energy efficient? And you have to use some, uh, you know, infographics and social media are certainly one way to get around some of those challenges. Um, but it, it, it is a difficult story to tell because you have this big story. It's it's spanning multiple disciplines. You have a large audience that you're reaching from the person that wants to know how is this going to impact IBM stock price to the person that wants to know why is this a company I want to work for. And uh, that that comes with uh, a whole number of challenges that, that we try to address. Mm. I think in, in uh, I'm just thinking about both cases where CERN is a, is a European organization, international slash European public organization, uh, and IBM a, a completely commercial you know corporation. You both, both of you, or both organizations have to explain why these amounts of budgets and money, you know, get spent on, on, on research. Is that a challenge or is that something that is accepted in, in both areas? James or Chris? Uh, yeah, so clearly we do a lot of, uh, specifically here in Europe, we work with the European Commission. We do a lot of uh, FP7 and now Horizon 2020 projects. I was just speaking with my colleagues yesterday, and I think we have over 60 
ongoing uh, FP7 and now Horizon 2020 projects. And it's very important that the average European taxpayer understands why this funding is going to IBM. And when you speak about uh, how this is going to translate into the consumer marketplace, how it's going to improve the the way your mobile phone operates to make it faster, to make the battery last longer, uh, these things, these are the angles that we need to use to explain to the taxpayer why their money is being funneled into this, as well as to continue to make Europe as an innovation uh, marketplace. If everything, uh, if all the talent and the brain drain leaves Europe, that's going to impact the EU uh, economically, and uh, we need to prevent that from happening as well. From our perspective, yes, we, I mean, CERN does have a substantial uh, budget. We're very open and transparent about it. Our our income from our member states is of the order of uh, 1 billion Swiss francs per year. Um, we put that into context by by comparing ourselves to large universities. Our member states have around 300 universities with a similar income to us. So we are a very um, very finely focused university, but we, that's essentially what we are. We, we, we carry out education and research here. Um, we also talk about we are, we're, we're an organization now with 21 member states, so we're very equitable about sharing the, uh, the cost around uh, countries. And CERN was founded partly 60, well, 61 years ago this year um, in recognition of the fact that, that, that physics was becoming big science and was getting beyond the reach of any single nation. So we share the costs. Um, one thing that's, that's extremely important to us, and I think that, that, that has been quite vital in in the effectiveness of our communications is that um, although I have a, a great team here at CERN, um, we also have contacts in all of our member states and, and other stakeholder nations around the world. So we, when we're telling our stories here, there are people telling them in the Netherlands, in Germany, in everywhere around the world, making them locally relevant too and telling them in terms that, that their stakeholders uh, appreciate as well. Now, from from a, a purely communications point of view, I mean, I understand that you all have your different stakeholders, and that you know, when we talk about the general public, it's it, that is not really a public. We need to be very precise. But what what are the kind of what are the kind of tactics uh, that that you've seen working in in that whole exercise of making things more understandable? I'm not using. The word simple here because we're talking about complex things but how, how what are your favorite things from a communications point of view to to make things much more understandable for let's say an average person an average stakeholder uh, well for, from our, our standpoint uh, one of the things that we work very closely with the scientists on outside of um just the typical things like writing press releases and speaking with the press is storytelling. So how can they talk about their research the same way that they would maybe talk about a recent vacation with their friends and family? So to speak at that kind of level of both enthusiasm and excitement, but also put it into perspective and use colorful analogies and and descriptions and using you know lots of good adjectives to explain what their research is. And we ask them to actually practice on their parents, practice on their children. So when they do need to have these conversations at um, with whether 
whether it's the press or at various events, uh, when they're not speaking to their peers, that they can be enthusiastic about it, but without going into uh, like they're speaking to Nature or a Science Journal. And that, we find, is a very effective method. And the scientists enjoy this because they, it gives them a chance to reach a broader audience with their science, but also to see uh, when someone gets it, that they're working on something and they understand it and their their eyes light up and say, that's that's fascinating, that's incredible. That's very rewarding for them. So it, it's, a, it's a good exchange there. I, I fully agree. It's all about, it's all about the storytelling. And we, we're extremely fortunate here in that we have a very large community, a very, people who are very enthusiastic to share what they do uh, and who go out there. And, and a lot of people, a lot of them are very talented storytellers in their own right. But we also offer training to them. So we, we run communications training courses, um, which go down extremely well. So most of the people who, are, who we are putting up to, to, to engage with our stakeholders are people who've been through those training courses. Um, we also, I mean, one thing that we, that we do that I think is extremely helpful for us, um, it's a very small scale thing, but, but when we um, asked our neighbors a few years ago how they would like CERN to improve its engagement with the local communities around here, one of the things they said, um, both in France and in Switzerland, is we, we want you to engage with our primary school sector. So you may think actually that the talking particle physics to primary school is one of the hardest things that you can do. It's actually amazing how how smart and, and astute these young kids are. But it's great training as well to actually go out there and for people to actually go out there and engage with, with kids in primary school who really are natural natural scientists. They all are at that age. I, I can see how that works with a bit uh, demystifying the, you know, the, the, the high scientific kind of uh, environment that exists that, you know, people think it's all too complex, it's all too far-fetched for me, uh, where when you bring your scientists inside, you know, schools and, and, and the environment where they are, it does make sense when you use storytelling then. I remember actually, we, we again, if I can just take a few minutes to, to recount a little anecdote about somebody who, who used to be at CERN many years ago retired, but he ran twice weekly public lectures on science uh, that were always packed out at CERN. Um, and he just picked up on whatever science was in the news and would, would, would talk about it. And his last talk was actually to CERN people. And he used a blackboard and chalk. And he, used, he, he was telling people, the CERN community, you're great storytellers. You really, I've, I've watched so many of you tell great stories. And all the while he was drawing a mountain on the blackboard. And he said, you would plan your route up this mountain of science. And you'd take a little pause here where the view's spectacular. You can just take it all in before you go on to the summit. The problem, he said, though, and he started drawing waves around the mountain, is that you know, the, your audience most of the time is actually not on this island. They're over there on the shore of the mainland. And they're a bit nervous about putting their toe in this little rowing boat to get across to your island. So it's, it's, it's all about pitching the level right as well was his message there. And that's another thing that we, we try to get across in our, in, our, in our training for people. That um, you know, great storytelling is part of it, but also adapting the level to the audience you're speaking to is an extremely important thing too. Mm-hmm. Chris, how does that work for uh, for IBM Research? Because I I know I mean with with CERN I mean there are very specific projects which have had a, a lot of attention and which are still having a lot of attention. But with IBM I mean there are so many projects and and not all of them are very visible. I mean, yeah, certainly we need to we look at the ones that are most focused to the IBM corporate strategy. Uh, this is clear, and the ones that 
are the most interesting for for the general public or that are stuff that's going to help our, our reputation in the in scientific communities. One of the things similar to offering classes like uh, what CERN does, we also very much want our scientists to engage in social media. So I shouldn't be the, the spokesperson for IBM Research. Our scientists should all be ambassadors for IBM Research. So we, we have our rock star scientists that are very good storytellers, that are very passionate, enthusiastic about what they're working on and we've been working with them uh, very closely to feel comfortable about dipping their toe to use CERN's analogy to to dip their toe into the area of social media with trainings on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn so they can also engage directly with their audience and this is also very important for for them and for IBM because you know, there's lots of statistics uh, that are out there I think there's this annual survey that uh, one of the PR agencies does and I think it's Edelman perhaps and in this survey, um, they ask the general public, who do you believe the most when you are reading a newspaper or when you're watching TV? What source do you believe the most? Is it the CEO of a company? Is it the, a, a high senior government official? Or is it a professor or a scientist at an organization? And lo and behold, the scientists and the professors rank the highest. So it's very important for us to use them as our ambassadors because people believe what they have to say beyond uh, some of our other executives. Yeah, Chris, you're, you're mentioning the, uh, I think it's the trust barometer by uh, Edelman. I'll put the link on the, on the show notes. Yeah, definitely uh, the scientists uh, or the scientific community as a, as, a, as a source is very high up the scale. I think it is the highest, like you said. It's no. also the, the European uh, Commission also does each, a Eurobarometer survey from time to time on attitudes and, and knowledge about science. And uh, again, it, it, it backs that up entirely. Scientists are yeah. very trusted. Now, question for both of you, but but Chris, when you say, you know, we, we, we push our scientists to use social media to tell the story and what have you, then I can hear a, a, a couple of communications colleagues go like, oh, wait, 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 you know, what happens to... Uh, intellectual property what happens to those you know deep secret projects you're working on you don't want your scientists to be on social media how, how do you react to that yeah well, i would say we don't push we encourage <laughs> but yeah certainly um that's part of the the training that we go through and and i mean these are phd folks they, they're they're smart enough to know that they shouldn't be talking about ongoing client engagements or contracts that we're signing it's really about connecting their research and maybe telling it in a in a jovial way on, on Twitter or on LinkedIn, where they're publishing things no different than they would be publishing something in, in a journal, but to bring it down to the audience that they're trying to reach. So we, you know, our scientists will be at various conferences. They'll take a picture perhaps of an interesting demo that they're at, or they'll just just tweeting that they're at a conference to their followers. We've had several scientists do such, uh, do such tweeting, and they have people walk up to them and say, hey, I was following you on Twitter. I saw you're here. I've been wanting to meet you for many, many months. I'd like an internship at your lab. How Can you have five minutes to sit down and have a coffee? So these types of ways to help them engage is what they see value in. And uh, so far... When we get to show them the analytics behind it and we show them that, hey, you, you've increased your, your, uh, your viewers, your number of fans by 50% over the last year, uh, this brings a bright smile to their face because it's really a proud moment for them to see that how influential they are. And that's, that's very important. Mm -hmm. James, is, is that something that plays in, in your area? I mean, uh, it, it are you know, public projects, but still, is there uh, some level of secrecy or how, how does social media play a role in, uh, in what you do? 
Social media is extremely important to us, and it's uh, uh, something that we've been involved with since we first switched on the LHC back in 2008. Uh, we, we launched our Twitter account back then. Um, you know, it, there, there are many. We, we, we also encourage people. We have guidelines. We, 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 our guidelines are basically common sense. They just say use common sense on social media, but we, we encourage people to be active on social media. There's a very clearly visible official CERN account out there. So if you want to know what CERN is, is officially thinking, then that's where you go. Um, and we have a number of people in my team are, are looking at what's going on there and they clearly identified themselves as being, you know, from the CERN communication group. So uh, they will pick up conversations if they need to. But there's, there's a hugely, hugely science engaged community out there. I remember when we, when we, when our following started to grow quite substantially, we were worried about yeah, are we going to have the resources to just to be able to engage with the conversations out there? Um, and the answer is actually at the moment, we probably just about do um, because the conversations are largely very positive and supportive and they're, they're people who are really engaged with science who are, who are talking about us out there. So yeah, social media is a very important thing for us. Um, you're right. In terms of, in terms of secrecy, there's very little that is secret at CERN. Um, we're, we're a public, we're a publicly funded organization. It says in our convention that we must, uh, publish and make as widely available as possible the results of everything we do. And, um, and with the exception of things that may have commercial sensitivity, because we nevertheless, we are a large budget and we issue a lot of contracts and so on, we're very, very open. Yeah. yeah. Another question on um, not only the difficulty of, uh, or the challenge, let's say, to, uh, to talk about complex things, but at the same time, uh, both of you are very much, uh, well, it's, uh, both of you are working in international organizations, but if we only look at Europe, for instance, with all the different languages, is, is that a challenge for, uh, for your communications? Not particularly. Um, we we do have our local teams in each of the countries, whether that's Europe or globally. Uh, IBM operates in over 170 countries around the world. And in most countries, we do have local communications people. So everything that we develop uh, is in English, but then the local teams adapt that uh, to, to their markets. I almost think of it as like an a la carte menu. If it makes sense for them to promote locally, then they do the translations. Um, we're lucky enough here at the at the Zurich Lab to have uh, scientists from over 45 different uh, countries around the world. So in many cases, we can uh, even do interviews in various languages uh, to get those messages across locally. So it's it really hasn't uh, become a, a problem at all. No, we're, we're very similar. We don't have communication offices in all in all our countries, but um, but there are. Uh, I know people in all of our member states, either in funding agencies or university press offices or national labs that cover particle physics. So um, we talk to them all of the time, and uh, and beyond our member states, you know, one of my some of my closest colleagues would be the person who does my job at Fermilab in Chicago or KEK outside Tokyo, for example. So we we have that. And another thing that um, that we we do, we've done twice now, two rounds of this, is we work with those people. Um, through periods where we have access to the uh, to the installations here, which are quite spectacular to see, um, and we say to them, you know, we want you to bring the, the most important communicators on science and science policy from your countries to CERN to meet people who speak their language to see where your country is involved with this. And we, we we've done we've circled through all of our member states um, before the LHC started up, whilst it was shut down for the last two years, doing that. So um, in that sense, the language issue takes care of itself. We publish everything like IBM in English, but also in French because of uh, our host region is Francophone. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is the, um, if you go back, because you've been with the organizations you work for, for for many years now, what is one of your most 
memorable moments in communicating science. If you have to take one moment that you say, I'm very proud of that, or this was very challenging, or this was whatever, but what would be the one that you, 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 know, you, you would mention here uh, from a communications point of view and communicating about science? Uh, Chris? Yeah, that's uh, that is a good question. I mean, immediately coming to mind, if you don't mind, I, I would quickly highlight two. Uh, I probably have two my most proudest moments uh, communicating science uh, in research. The one, the first one being when we opened up our uh, new nanotechnology center uh, two, three years ago. Now, we had six hundred people here. We had five Nobel laureates. I actually helped one of the Nobel laureates write a, a speech to give uh, at that event. And um, and working with him on telling his story uh, was was certainly a very proud moment for, for myself. And the reaction we, we received from the audience, uh, both on on his speech, but also on the general event was uh, was outstanding. And uh, it really it really uh, got some great pickup. But more on a smaller scale, um, about uh, three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I worked with some of our scientists who are working on atomic scale research where they're imaging atoms at a very, very fine resolution. And uh, they had this paper published in Science, um, and it got very good pickup in the in the scientific communities. But we obviously, we wanted to scale this out and remind people of what cool science that uh, we're doing here at IBM. So I encouraged him uh, to make a YouTube video with me. Uh, that uh, that wound up getting over a hundred thousand hits, but more importantly, one of those uh, hits that w- was viewed was by a professor at the University of Aberdeen. And when he watched it, uh, it immediately clicked in his mind that this technique that the scientists had developed uh, could help him image some uh, molecules that he had discovered uh, in the in a trench off the coast of Japan. So, based on our YouTube video, he had contacted the team here. And uh, and they formed a collaboration around that. And six, seven months later, they developed a paper for Nature Bio, uh, Biochemistry that was published. And that all came because uh, of our video and our social media efforts. And uh, that, for me, was was a real proud moment because it showed the value of what we were doing to the scientists. And now, every time they have a paper, they come up to me and they, they want to do videos more and more. So it was a real good proof point. Yeah, that's a great, a great example of uh, how how one event and one video through social media improves the work of other scientists uh, across the globe. Yeah, James, your uh, your choice, your pick. Well, it would have to be the the day we announced the discovery of the Higgs boson, yeah. and um, and the reason for that is um, because so many things had c- came together, and a lot of groundwork really came together then. So, you know. It, we had been, my team had been promoting the idea that Schoen should be doing its science in public, that uh, we should not just be communicating, we've got a result, but we should be talking about the process because, you know, the Large Hadron Collider project, for example, is a 40-year project. It's a huge thing. It's not just the discovery of the Higgs boson and we wanted to get that across. So in 2008, we started inviting people in for key moments like the startup of the machine when we started doing physics and, uh, and so on. And it was a hard sell at first, but for the Higgs boson, the science community came to us and said, right, we've got this big thing to announce. How do we make the story? How do we make the story fly? So there's been a cultural shift, I think, in CERN that now it's just taken um, for granted that we do that. And it was complicated by the fact that we didn't know until quite close to the, the moment it was going to happen, whether we were going to have a discovery to announce or just a, another update on the way to the discovery. 
there was the big annual conference for particle physics in the world was happening in Melbourne at precisely the same time. So until about a week before, two weeks before actually, we, we were working on the idea that there would be an update on the research program in Melbourne that we would be, uh, we'd have a viewing party at CERN, we'd be webcasting it from Melbourne and so on and so forth. But because we had these networks of people in place, we were able to flip that around very quickly. Um, we also, you know, it was not only the day we announced the discovery of, of this uh, particle, but it was also the day that two of its first proponents, Peter Higgs and Francois Anglais, met for the first time. Uh, they were in the audience at CERN, along with a, a bunch of other theorists from uh, from the US, uh, Guralnik and Hagen, who'd also been publishing papers on this back in the 1960s. So just everything really clicked, and it was, it was quite an amazing moment. And then the, the kind of coverage that we got of it, um, there was one in particular that I remember from Time magazine, which was which was beautiful, and it really just sums up what we were saying right at the beginning about understanding these complicated concepts. Um, the article went on about you know the world stopped to, to to take stock of something that was was really substantial, although we may not really have understood it. You know, it um, we realised that, that, that there was something bigger than ourselves going on here. So it, it was it was a very very amazing day. So that has to be the top of my list. Yeah, yeah. Now and then, of course, the challenge that when you discover this. Uh, again, explaining what it means or what it could mean, that is even more difficult now because it's, it's I mean, it's its totally new, right? It doesn't stop with the discovery. You know, now it's, it's an ongoing communications thing around that discovery at that time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, this, we hope, this, this, this discovery of this particle will be, you know, the, the start of a whole new adventure of exploring the physics of, of it and the mechanism it governs and the, the physics that we hope it will lead us into in the future. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we've been doing, actually, if I, if I can just take a little tangent here, is we, um, we took a conscious decision a couple of years ago that, that, that organizations like CERN, scientific organizations that have a very um, substantial profile, should be using that profile for the benefit of science in general. So we've, we've run a couple of TEDx conferences at CERN now, which are very self-consciously not all about CERN science. They're about other areas of science too. So we get people talking about GM. We get people talking about nanotechnology. We get people talking about nuclear energy and all kinds of things that, that deserve a rational discussion. But we do have in each of our TEDx conferences one CERN talk. And uh, from the first one, 2013, TEDx CERN 2013, that talk was about what you can infer from the discovery of the Higgs boson. And it's about you know, the, the, the fact that we've measured one number, the mass of the Higgs particle, what that tells us about the fate of the universe. Um, and that talk was the most popular one from that TEDx conference. It was featured by TED. It's been translated into 29 languages. And the last time I looked at it, it had one and a quarter million views. So, you know, there is a real channel out there for us to, 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 to engage with, admittedly, a very self-selecting audience, but, but a substantial and influential one, I think, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chris, uh, for, um, for IBM, I know that um, there are a couple of challenges in, in for instance, getting science or scientific jobs, uh, getting people to these studies, first of all, and then jobs. Uh, women in, in research, in IT, in scientific research. Is, is that one of the things on your agenda as a communications officer? Or Yes, absolutely. Um, we, have, uh, we need to improve not just IBM in general, but the community at large needs to improve the number of women that enter the field of science and technology or STEM, as we call it. And uh, we start 
at the very uh, smallest level in, in the universities and even in the the grade school classes, we host um, uh, the kids here at the lab every year. We give them tours. But then as we span this up, we have a lot of our female scientists uh, doing mentoring. Uh, several of our scientists participate in uh, women-focused scientific communities where they're encouraging young people to take this up as a career. And then we, we also leverage our, our most successful female scientists in the press, in, in our videos, in social media. Uh, Heike Real is one of our IBM fellows, which is the highest uh, honor that we have in IBM research. And uh, she is very active in Twitter and on social media to make her approachable to young women that can ask her questions about how she uh, how she became a physicist, and she has a particularly interesting story because uh, she initially studied to be uh, a wood worker. She wanted to make furniture out of out of arts and crafts and out of out of wood. And uh, she had to change. Uh, she got fascinated by nanoscience very late uh, in physics, very late in her career, and she completely changed her career path. Uh, from furniture to nanotechnology. And that's a very compelling story, I think, for, for particularly for women who were maybe led down the wrong path and now are interested to uh, to change careers. Mm. James, is that something that is also on your agenda? Uh, because, I mean, you're, from my perception at least, you're very much more surrounded by, you know, full-time scientists and, and people who only do that and you have access to the top of the cream probably of, uh, of the European universities and international or is, is that a, just a, a misconception in my mind? No, no. I mean, well, there's, there's a number of points here. First of all, I mean, uh, gender neutrality is very important to us and showing diversity, the whole diversity of the research community here is extremely important to us and that's something we try to do in all of our communications. Uh, we uh, endeavor to be gender neutral in language and everything that we publish too. So, you know, the leaders of the um, of the big experiments, we don't call them spokesmen, we call them spokespeople. And I think this is a very important thing to do. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, recruitment, then at the moment, I think, you know, of course, CERN wants to recruit the, the best, and we have a we have a very act, proactive approach to doing that. But but CERN, jobs at CERN and work at CERN is extremely highly sought after. So I don't think that we have a really serious problem in, in recruiting scientists as such, although one of the issues we do have is recruiting engineers, because CERN actually, in terms of the people it employs, is an engineering laboratory. It's people at universities around the world who come here to do the science. So there are many, many issues here. But term, in terms of you know diversity and, and gender, that's a very important issue for us. There is a perception that, that what we do is very male dominated. It is less so than you would think. And um, we, of course, have a, a, a very big opportunity coming up. Um, this is the last year of the mandate of our current Director General, Rolf Hoyer, and his successor is, is a woman, Fabiola Giannotti, who will be the first female Director General of CERN. I think that's, that's a huge uh, opportunity to, to spread the message of uh, the, 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 that science is for everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, that will be definitely a, a, a good point to take, a good point on the agenda to, to push this uh, idea and concept forward. Yeah. Okay, well, um, what I understood is that uh, to communicate science, you need to do a lot of storytelling. And as you said, both of you said, uh, really look at which stakeholders you're talking with, uh, on what level, and uh, which kind of story will, will work. Um, I also um, understood that you, you are using your, your own people, your scientists, train them to do storytelling and give them access to social media uh, to be able to to be part of a full communications plan, uh, which I always also believed in. I mean, spokespeople as such, 
Uh, I mean, we, we have our, our own employees. They are the specialists in their topics. Give them access to communications means train them and they will be the, the best spokesperson of an organization, uh, much better than us PR people probably. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add to the audience? I mean, this is going out probably to, to your colleagues, peers and uh, communications people uh, about communicating science. Is storytelling the most important part or is there anything else that we didn't really cover in, in how to make it easier to communicate science? I certainly think storytelling is a very important part of it and relevance is a very important part of it. And something that I touched on when I was talking about Ted, but didn't really develop is, is, you know, the, the absolute importance of, of, of science being on the agenda of all kinds of stakeholders from the general public to the people who are deciding how we deal with all the major issues confronting society today, because all of them, whether it's energy or climate or water or whatever, they all need science. So, um, so the stakes, I think, are extremely high. And, um, and it, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, organizations like CERN, big, high-profile scientific organizations, I think have a, an almost moral obligation to, to, to get science on the agenda. Mm. Every yeah, Chris, I'm, I'm coming to you because I want to pick up what James just said. The, the, the challenges that we have worldwide, be it energy and mobility and all these things. I mean, I do think that with IBM, the general strategy there of a smarter world with a smarter planet and smarter health and what have you is is a good umbrella topic, right? To hang your your scientific communications uh, messages on there. Uh, absolutely, it's a, it's a great door opener to start the conversation, and then depending on your audience, then you can dig deeper or dig wider. It really depends on um, on the audience. But clearly, we can start at the level of, of how this is going to impact the planet, whether it's energy, health care, water for that matter, and then take it from there going into the detailed levels of the science. We open up our lab uh, several times a year where not only we let the press in, but we also let the general public in. And we do give them tours to show them hands-on you know, here's the big picture, but now let's show you, you know, very tangible science that uh, that is going to impact your lives in the coming future, uh, particularly for our neighborhood here in uh, at the Zurich Lab. We're in a, a leafy suburb uh, of the city, and we have a very active community that uh, or neighborhood that uh, surrounds us. So we're very it's very important for us to communicate to them what we're doing here so they understand it. And we hope that we do a good enough job where they're so excited about what's happening in their local community that they then spread this message, whether it's word of mouth or, or via social media. Great. Okay, just to close down to both of you, maybe start with uh, James. We just started 2015. What is your communication challenge that you want to tackle in, uh, in this year? Oh, we have a number of them, but um, <laughs> let, let, let's just say the, the two big things are the LHC has been off now, the Large Hadron Collider has been off for two years. It's starting up much higher energy uh, with beams circulating again in March and physics resuming in uh, May. So we want to try and rekindle the excitement about the new potential for discovery that we've got there. And hopefully some new discoveries will come along. Who knows? And then, as I mentioned earlier, we've, we've, we're in a transition year. This is the last year of Rolf Hoyer's mandate as Director General. So I hope to be working a lot with um, Fabiola Giannotti on working out strategies for communication for her mandate, which runs 2016 to 2020. Yeah. And uh, for yourself, James? For myself? <laughs> as a communicator? Anything you're going to change in 2015? Anything I'm going to change? Well, we've been talking about social media a, a lot. I must admit that personally, I'm pretty useless out there on social media. <laughs> so that's something that I want to try and pick up on uh, this year for myself. Yeah. Okay, great stuff. How about you, Chris? 
Yeah, well, from a, a big level uh, idea, I mean, we clearly the IBM Corporation is going through a transformation right now, and uh, and our idea is to use research as one of the linchpins in telling this transformation story. As we look to focus more on uh, cognitive computing and neuromorphic computing, and looking at the future of of the way uh, the computing environment is going to be, or this new era of computing is going to be, we still need to crack the the shell. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Hollywood has uh, positioned artificial intelligence in a very negative light, and it's very important for us to uh, to get beyond uh, the misnomers of Hollywood to explain to people how uh, cognitive computing and learning machines are going to improve our lives and not uh, not take over the planet as uh, as our friends in California might make you think. Okay, and um, um, what will be your uh, your own? Uh challenge or topic to, to look at in 2015 for you as a communications professional? Yeah, for myself, um, it's been a, a, a goal of mine since I've, I've been here in, in Switzerland since 2009, and that's to take the, the, B, uh, the B2 uh, German test. Uh, so uh-huh. uh, I want to continue to perfect my German skills, and uh, I hopefully uh, in, uh, in, uh, in June... I'll uh, pass the B2 test and then I'll feel more comfortable in, in speaking to the German press in, in their native tongue. Okay, that's that's great. Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll close down here. Uh, James and Chris, we, we hadn't spoken for years. I'm very glad with this. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for being on uh, Wag the Dog FM and uh, have a great 2015. You too, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Philip. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, there you go. The importance of storytelling in scientific communications. Great stuff here from uh, James and Chris. Really enjoyed that podcast. Um, if you're interested and you really like what you're hearing, please do subscribe at www.wagthedog.fm. I want to make this an interactive show. So please, if you have feedback, comments, tips, people you want to hear on the show, Just leave a message, leave an audio message on our website. Uh, I really would appreciate feedback. It's really important. This is your show as much as mine. And um, hear you next week. Until then, do the right thing. Keep the peace.